Hmm. What's geogram? I don't know. Maybe it's geogram? How about geogram with A-L Wix? Or is it Al Wix? Just call me Allie. And it's geogram. Welcome to Geogram, the podcast that combines the geography and grammar of the English language. I'm your host, fantasy and young adult author A.L. Wicks. On this podcast, we're filling in the map of the English language with a treasure trove of grammar rules and fascinating facts. You can always find the show notes and transcripts at ploppletop.com geogram. This week, we've got a full podcast episode for you. We'll start off discussing sentence errors and how to avoid them. And then I have a surefire way for you to beat writer's block every single time. In the news is a discussion about academic publishing versus the big five trade publishers. You won't want to miss that. When you write a sentence in English, there are a myriad of structural sentence errors you need to watch out for. Last week, we covered the four basic types of sentences, minor, simple, compound, and complex. This week, we'll delve into six structural sentence errors. Now, don't tune out on me. I promise this should be a lot more interesting than you might think. First off, sentence fragments or incomplete sentences that don't work as minor sentences. Last week, we talked about minor sentences as one of the four sentence structures. Just to quickly review, minor sentences would be sentence fragments given the fact that they don't contain either a subject or a verb or both except that they make sense based on implied subjects or actions based on decades or centuries of use in the English language, as well as gestures that usually accompany such phrases as come in or after you. Sentence fragments, then, are sentences that don't contain either subjects or verbs or both and do not make sense because of that. This would include sentences such as taking a walk around the park, which is long enough to be a complete sentence, but doesn't contain a subject. Who is taking a walk around the park? We don't know. It's not a commonly used phrase in English with an obvious implied answer, so it is considered a sentence fragment. Another sentence fragment error is when the verb is left out. For example, in the sentence, Professor Harold's English class on Mondays at 3 o'clock contains a lot of detail, but no verb, no action. Even the sentence, the red car that Ambrose drives, is a sentence fragment because even though there's a verb word, drives, it doesn't match up to the subject, which is the car, so the sentence is still incomplete and we can feel that. When we hear, the red car that Ambrose drives, it leaves us wondering, so what about the car? If sentence fragments are grammatically incorrect and often incoherent, Does this mean that you should never use sentence fragments in your writing? And if a book contains a sentence fragment, does that mean it's a poorly written book? The answer to both questions is not necessarily. For example, if your writing includes real-to-life dialogue, which it should, if you're writing any kind of fiction or nonfiction stories about humans or sentient creatures that can speak, you'll want to mimic real conversations. And if you've ever paid attention to real-life conversations, whether it's a conversation you're having with a friend or a conversation you're overhearing in a cafe, you'll quickly notice that conversations are full of sentence fragments. I think of the conversation between Edward and Eleanor in the 1997 version of Sense and Sensibility. It's full of sentence fragments, 
But the entire thing is not only fully comprehensible, they convey an enormous amount of meaning because of the way in which the sentence fragments are used. So avoiding sentence fragments and minor sentences in your writing is not a hard and fast rule. Just make sure you use them in a real-to-life way, which will primarily be in the dialogue between two or more people or two or more talking animals if you're writing something like Winnie the Pooh. Next up, run-on sentences. A run-on sentence is a sentence that contains more information than it should because it runs on past the point when it should have stopped. It's usually two or more sentences stuck together, sometimes with a comma where a period should have been, and sometimes without any punctuation at all. A lot of young kids talk in run-on sentences, especially when they're excited about something. For example, my kindergartner recently told me something like, I wanted to go outside, but I didn't know what to wear because I didn't know if it was cold or hot, so I was just looking outside to see if I could tell if it was cold or hot, and I couldn't tell, so I decided to put on some short-sleeved and long-sleeved shirts because if it was hot, the shorts would work, and if it was cold, the long-sleeved shirt would work, so that's why I decided to wear that. And then I didn't know if my feet would get too hot or too cold, so I decided I'd wear sandals, but I would wear socks with my sandals. That sentence is 111 words long, and there's not a single obvious moment of punctuation. It should be divided up into two or three sentences at least. And the use of conjunction words makes it able to carry on without feeling stilted. But if you're reading it, you'd wonder where you should take a breath, either mentally or physically. And that brings us to our third sentence error, comma splicing. Some run-on sentences do contain commas, which creates another sentence error, comma splicing. Comma splicing occurs when you're taking two sentences that should be separate and splicing them together or joining them with a comma. In Garner's Modern English Dictionary, Brian Garner states, quote, Some grammarians distinguish between a run-on sentence, also called a fused sentence, and a comma splice, or a run-together sentence, end quote. Only grammarians would initially think that a run-on sentence and a run-together sentence have enough distinction between the two of them to be defined separately, which Garner notes by stating, quote, The presence or absence of a comma, and therefore the distinction between a run-on sentence and a comma splice, isn't usually noteworthy, so most writers class the two problems together as run-on sentences, end quote. But let's just say, for the sake of gaining a full understanding, that there is a distinctive and important difference. The practically never-ending sentences that four-, five-, and six-year-olds sometimes use clearly have no punctuation at all and should be considered run-on sentences. Out of the two types of run sentences, we may say that run-on sentences are more more juvenile because they are so often employed by kids. That's not to say that run-together sentences are more sophisticated, though perhaps they are, because writers like Charles Dickens have employed them. With the opening sentence, or paragraph, since the entire paragraph is one sentence, of A Tale of Two Cities have quite as much impact if it were not a run-together sentence? They say that the opening sentence is the most important one in a book, and in a lot of ways that's true. If Charles Dickens thought the same thing, then he apparently wanted to get extra impact in by waiting to add a period until the very last possible moment the end of the first paragraph, which is also the end of the first sentence, which is really about 15 run-together sentences with 13 comma splices and one em-dash. There are a couple of advantages that comma-spliced run-together sentences have over no-punctuation run-on sentences. These advantages make them somewhat acceptable in writing in certain circumstances. In his dictionary, Brian Gardner enumerates three ways in which a comma-spliced run-together sentence is a better 
running sentence and more acceptable by grammar authorities. The first is that, quote, the clauses are short and closely related, end quote. This is usually the case. It certainly is with the run-together sentence of a tale of two cities, quote, it was the best of times is the first clause and contains six words. It was the worst of times contains six words. The first 10 clauses each contain six words. The next two contain five, the next seven, and the last short clause contains eight. The only long clause is the last one, and it's made longer by an interrupter thought or a parenthetical injection, which we'll talk about another time. The second thing that makes a comma-spliced, run-together sentence advantageous over a no-punctuation, run-on sentence is that the commas, however much they're mistakenly used, at least give the reader proper cues in their reading to know how to proceed with the sentence. On the other hand, a miscue is when a sentence isn't clear to a reader at first glance, and the inflection and emphasis one gives to certain words is incorrect. And once you can see that, you often have to backtrack and reread the sentence. I had this happen to me just this morning when I was reading a small book. Bumping up against a miscue has probably happened to you as well. Miscues don't always indicate that the sentence is poorly written, though it is probably the case that it could have been reworded so that a miscue was less likely. However, a miscue is almost certain to happen if there is no punctuation whatsoever, like you would find in a no punctuation run on sentence. Whereas even with a less grammatically correct comma-spliced run-together sentence, at least you'll likely have some cues and the sentence is more likely to be coherent from the first read. Let's get into a couple of examples. A run-on sentence might read something like, Drina needed to stay and do her homework. The essay on Toastals was due on Monday. We can see that this run-on sentence has two independent clauses because both sections could be an independent sentence. Drina needed to stay and do her homework. The essay on toadstools was due on Monday. The other correct option would be to make this a single sentence with a semicolon between the two clauses. However, a comma between these two sections does not work because, again, there are two independent clauses, and with a comma between them, it's a comma splice. If a sentence was written differently so that one of the clauses was independent and one was subordinate, then a comma between them would work perfectly. For example, we could write the sentence as, Because the essay on toadstools was due on Monday, Drina needed to stay and do her homework. In that sentence, the first part, Because the essay on toadstools was due on Monday, is a subordinate clause. We can tell that because it doesn't feel complete. If it were written by itself, we would be left wondering, So what if the essay was due on Monday? And the second part of the sentence, Drina needed to stay and do her homework is an independent clause. So now that we have a subordinate clause and an independent clause, they can be properly connected with a comma. Number four is disagreement between the verb and subject. Perhaps the sentence error could be summed up in one go. If you have a singular subject, use a singular verb. If you have a plural subject, use a plural verb. Sounds simple enough, right? But this is the English language, so there are, of course, going to be some exceptions. What if you have two or more singular subjects that are connected with the conjunction? And then there's the whole issue of either or and neither nor. What about false noun attraction, collective nouns, compound subjects, 
subject and verb separation, and nouns of multitude. When it comes to making sure the subject and verb agree, there can be a lot more to it. We're going to need to do a deeper dive on this in a future episode, but for now, we'll just focus on the basics with some examples. For a singular subject, we use a singular verb. For example, Roger waits for a fresh piece of toast to appear. Some two-word examples, she runs, it flies, he goes, etc. Every subject in those sentences is singular. Roger, she, it, he. For a plural subject, we use a plural verb. For example, the students wait for more toast to appear. The students wait together because there's more than one student. They wait. We go. For a sentence with two singular subjects connected by and, we use a plural verb. For example, Drina and Cressida wait for their friends to finish eating toast. If you've ever been confused by a sentence and you're wondering if you should use a singular or a plural verb, swapping in a pronoun for the subject or subjects is a quick and easy way to know for sure what verb you should use. In the case of the previous sentence, instead of saying, Drina and Cressida wait, we could say, they wait for their friends to finish eating toast. By doing this, we can be sure that the sentence requires a plural verb. Number five is misplaced commas. If a comma is in the wrong place, the meaning of the sentence can quickly change and become an unintentionable mad libs. But the use of commas isn't as straightforward as commas are for pauses, interruptions, and breaks. There are lots of rules for when and how to use commas, from lists and serials, think of the Oxford comma, to question tags and parenthetical elements. Like I said, we'll cover that in a future episode, but for now, here's a quick rundown of the main ways to use a comma correctly. Number one, use a comma to divide two clauses of a sentence if one is an independent clause and the other is a subordinate clause. If they're both independent clauses, then to use a comma properly in that situation, you would need to add a conjunction such as so or and. Here's an example of a sentence with two independent clauses. Faulkner needed time to think. He went for a long walk on the beach. If we want to keep this as one sentence and use a comma, we need to add a conjunction word that will connect the two halves. Faulkner needed time to think, comma, so he went for a long walk on the beach. Number two, use a comma to divide items in a list. And because I always lean toward the side of clarity, I always think an Oxford comma, which is the comma before the last item of the list, is essential. For example, if I were giving my husband a list of school supplies to get at the store, this is how the sentence would look. I need you to get pens, comma, paper, comma, coloring markers, Oxford comma, and a pencil sharpener. Note that there's a comma after the word markers. That's the Oxford comma. Number three, when in doubt, look in a book. The more you read, the more you'll naturally pick up on how commas are correctly used, from the commas before and after dialogue to the commas around parenthetical elements and after introductory phrases. Number six, dangling modifiers. Our last sentence error sounds more complicated than it really is. First, a modifier is a word or phrase that is modifying, describing, or giving us more information about the subject or action of the sentence, more often the subject. And it's typically left dangling because the subject that it's actually supposed to be modifying has been left out of the sentence for one reason or another. 
Often, it's because the writer thinks it's obvious or implied as the story is told, or because the sentence structure doesn't follow a logical order or it has been flipped. Let's take a look at a properly written sentence where the modifier is actually modifying what it's supposed to. Having neglected to observe the time, Gellin suddenly realized he was late when the sun was setting. We can see that the character Gellin is the one that is properly modified in this sentence because he was the one that had neglected to observe the time. So how would it potentially look with a dangling modifier? This is what often happens. Having neglected to observe the time, the sun was setting. In this sentence, it appears that the sun neglected to observe the time until it was setting, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. This often happens in a book or story where the actions of the character are being described within the paragraph or at least in a nearby sentence or two. But even though the information may be understood from previous sentences, it's still definitely something you want to avoid in your writing because the reader will probably trip over it, even if just for a moment. And anytime that happens, the reader is briefly pulled out of the story, which breaks the flow. That's something you want to avoid almost at all cost as a writer. You want your reader to be so engaged in the story that they're swept along in its current. And any instance where they suddenly drop out of the story back into reality, no matter how small the moment, can be very jarring and unpleasant. So always make sure your modifiers are paired up with exactly what they should be modifying. I just wanted to take a quick moment in between our two educational sections to tell you that we have a Patreon set up for this podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash geogram, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-e-o-g-r-a-m. Even if you only pledge a dollar a month, that will help us make sure we get this podcast really rolling and as high quality as possible. As a homeschooling teacher mom, I'm hoping there will be lots of parents who find this to be educational value for their kids and themselves. I hope that even my small news briefs of the book world will be interesting and informative to kids. It's never too early to help your little entrepreneur learn a bit of business lingo. Another way you can help us get a good start is to leave a five-star rating on your podcast app. And thank you. Is writer's block a real thing? I know from personal experience that it can definitely feel real when you're in it, like you've hit a mental brick wall and you can't get past it. But here's the thing. If there were a brick wall that you couldn't get past, then once you hit it, that would be it. Game over. No more writing for the rest of your life. But writers do get past it. They get ideas again and they move on. Sometimes it takes a while, sometimes a long while, and sometimes it can be overcome within a few minutes or hours. So what happens between the time that a writer is stuck and the moment they get unstuck? And why do we get stuck in the first place? It has to do with your creative well, or how full your creative cup is, or whatever other analogy you want to use. You can only put stuff out on a page, whether you're writing or typing, if you have stuff in you to put out. If you've used up all your ideas in one way or another, or you're feeling depleted, it's time to put down the writing pen or close your writing program and go for a walk or go to a museum or pick up a book and read. Maybe you should plan a camping trip or maybe travel and spend three weeks in another country. Anything that you can do to see new things, hear new sounds, feel something new, or experience something different, that will expand your creative world 
and fill your creative well. But you can't just go to a museum or travel to another country and mindlessly wander around with no purpose or just see a big house or take another tour. Mindlessly existing in another place won't give you more ideas. You have to be curious. You have to make observations of things big and small, sometimes enormous or teeny tiny. And only then will your creative well begin to really fill. That's why I never feel like I have writer's block anymore because I know that if I can't seem to get past a certain section or chapter, it's because I'm not piecing things together properly because my brain doesn't have very much to work with. So I give it more to work with. I take a walk and I just look around me and observe. Some people call them walking meditations where they're just very present in the moment, which just basically means you actually notice and take in the experiences that your physical body is having. The temperature, the speed of the wind or breeze, the warmth on top of your head compared to the cooler air around your ankles, the exact color of the grass as it's drying in the summer sun, or maybe how much a field has greened up in the winter as fresh blades begin to grow. Perhaps you live in a city and you never noticed before what size and color the bricks are on one building versus the next. Or maybe you live in a tall building, but you've never taken the time to go up to the roof and look out over the cityscape. If you do, just stay there for a while and watch. What birds do you see and what are they doing? What about the people below? Are they getting into arguments or being kind and gracious to each other? How many are wearing suits and how many tourists do you see? How many trees dot the streets? Do you know what kind of trees they are? Have you ever inspected the bark up close or seen one of their leaves? What if you live in a place that's covered with snow for half the year? What inspiration can you get from a constant blanketing of white? I know I don't have to tell this to people like myself who love living in places with a proper snowy winter, but take a look at the snow. Are there patches on the trees where the snow was driven against them in a heavy snowstorm? Do you see tracks? What animals or people are active? Even in a white landscape, there will be lots of other colors, not to mention shadows and sparkles and shifts throughout a single day and throughout a season. Sometimes browsing on the internet can be a way to fill your creative well, but you have to do it the right way. You have to put in the thought to actually observe something. For example, if you watch a movie or documentary, try to spend most of the time observing what's going on in the background. Do a deep dive on a completely random subject like non-ocean surfing or letter locking from the Middle Ages and take time to really look at the pictures that come up in the articles. Maybe you should put on an audiobook or a podcast and go do some yard work. No matter what you do, just make sure you're actually using your brain and your senses to take things in. When you do that, your creative well will fill, and the next time you sit down to write, your brain will have lots more ideas to work with. It may still take a little bit of effort to get around that brick wall, but now you'll have the resources to do it. Now for some news. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about Wattpad's business model compared to the big publishers. I also mentioned that Penguin Random House, which is currently sitting at the number one spot of trade publishers, is in the process of purchasing Simon & Schuster, which is currently the third top trade publisher. From what I can see, it has passed muster with most regulators in the United States, and I think it's only being held up now by the Competition and Markets Authority regulators in the UK. They said that an answer would be given on May 19th of this year, but I haven't been able to find a statement or article about a final answer on that. It's not the only merger being looked at at the moment, and there was one that caught my attention because of its mention of academic publishing. 
There's quite a large difference both in revenue and in focus between the trade publishers and the academic publishers. Trade publishers are the ones that print books for kids' bookshelves, for young adult readers who can't get enough of a series they love, and basically to fill the vast majority of the categories you see on Amazon, whether it's contemporary magic fantasy or historical biographies and memoirs. Those are all printed by trade publishers. But even though trade publishers bring in a lot of money, altogether it's in the billions of dollars. Their profits are nowhere near those of academic publishers such as Pearson, Elsevier, Reuters, and others. Consider this quote from an article by Wired Magazine from 2012, which makes it a little bit dated, but it still has good information. Quote, Education publishers dwarf trade presses. Education publishers are also much bigger than other media companies that attract much more attention. Pearson is far bigger than the New York Times company and much more profitable. In order to find publishers with greater revenue or profits, you have to go up the ladder to companies like News Corp that includes global television markets or retail entities like Amazon, end quote. So here's the thing. If academic publishers are much, much bigger than trade publishers, then what's the big deal about two trade publishers merging? Well, it's not it's not quite that simple. For example, Pearson, the biggest academic publisher until Elsevier took the crown in 2019, previously owned Penguin Group, one of the big trade publishers. Until about four years ago, Pearson still owned 25% of Penguin Random House, the other 75% being owned by Bertelsmann due to the Penguin Random House merger. Bertelsmann has since acquired the outstanding 25%, so now they have full ownership of Penguin Random House. This is all to say that there are a few behemoths in the publishing industry due to multiple mergers and consolidations over the last few decades. Some of these large media companies have enormous holdings and their trade publishing divisions make up only a small part of it. So at what point does big become too big? And at what point does a media company that has its hands in multiple facets of the information and entertainment market become too powerful? Uh, that's what the Authors Guild wants to prevent. They put out a statement at the end of last year calling on, quote, the Justice Department to challenge Penguin Random House's purchase of Simon & Schuster and refuse to allow even further consolidation of the U.S. book publishing industry, end quote. And now there's even more movement in the academic publishing market. In an article by the Associated Press in March, it was noted that Houghton Mifflin Harcourt is selling its trade publishing division, HMH Books and Media, which includes titles by J.R.R. Tolkien and the Curious George Children series, to News Corp's HarperCollins division for $349 million. Houghton Mifflin said that the sale will allow it to focus on its K-12 education business. It serves 90% of U.S. schools and call itself the largest K-12 education technology company in the United States. And that comes from that article by Associated Press. Uh, and then it says it will be putting, quote, more emphasis on digital sales, end quote. So there are two particularly interesting things in those quotes from that article. First, the buyer is News Corp, which is already a media behemoth or monstrosity, depending on how you want to look at it. It's It controls a lot. Second, Houghton Mifflin wants to focus on its education division because it's poised to be hugely profitable. This comes almost at the same time that Pearson announced it was moving to an on-demand digital space with some of its textbooks. There's clearly plenty more to be made in the academic realm, and even though trade publishing doesn't hold a candle to it, 
The fact that some of the biggest trade publishers are sister companies to large academic publishers does still give us reason to think that now might be the time to prevent more mergers that would result in even larger mega publishers. What I'm loving this week. So last week, I discovered an old TV series on YouTube that I'm kind of loving as part of my own efforts to fill my own creative well. It's called America Unearthed, and it features Scott Walter, who's a forensic geologist. Uh, it's, it's a cute show, even though there are moments that seem scripted or stilted or sometimes both. They do try to make it fun and interesting with John, James Bond-like spy graphics, and it, it's undeniable that the content is it, it's pretty interesting overall. The United States of America is absolutely full of some of the most amazing artifacts and clues to its ancient past. No one really wants to talk about that anymore. And the whole professional field of archaeology in America is set up so that a group of people decide whether artifacts or archaeological finds are accepted or rejected. And if they're rejected, it's like they're writing them out of history. No one ever gets to hear about them. They're basically saying it didn't happen which just really seems absolutely silly and ridiculous. Whoever heard of a group of scientists who got to see something and say, you know what, no, I've decided that didn't happen, so we're not going to include it in the official history. It's, it's really absurd, but that's how it works. And yet even this show, which shows you more artifacts and archaeological finds, is still clearly in somebody's pocket, especially when they declare obvious archaeological finds as of no importance or not man-made but I guess at least you get to see them. I'm sure that even the artifacts and finds featured in this show have been pretty carefully chosen for their interest and been approved by somebody, Um, but at least we get a glimpse of some things that we wouldn't have heard of otherwise. Coming up next time. Even though the phrase to suss out didn't show up until around 1953, There was a lot in England and Wales that dates all the way back to 1824, which was actually known as the Suss Law. Until next time, finish a book, leave a review, and pick up another one. You can find me on social media as ALWix or The ALWix, or you can reach me at ALWix at ProtonMail.com. If you'd like, you can also write to my publisher, Ploppletop Publishing, at contactus at ploppletop.com, and thanks to them for their support. Please take a moment to give this podcast a five-star rating and subscribe so you won't miss a single episode. Our theme song is Time for Supper by Golden Age Radio. All other music and sounds are from Epidemic Sound. If you're unable to find this podcast on any podcast app, please drop us a line and let us know so we can make sure it's as widely available as possible. Transcripts and show notes, including links to all news stories and research I reference, are available at ploppletop.com slash geogram. And thanks for listening. 